You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. This is week four, covering Matthew chapters 8 through 10. Good morning. Yeah. I, my husband said, why don't you do the clappy thing? <clears throat> do you ladies know that? So how are you doing with the workbook? It's been three weeks of homework. If, you're, if you have questions or if you're struggling, if you haven't got the rhythm of it, please talk to someone. We're all in this together and we, would, we want you to get the most out of it, okay? So don't suffer silently. So, Christy reminded us last week that Matthew has five discourses interspersed with narrative action, and the Sermon on the Mount lesson was all discourse. But this week, the pace changes up. We've got two weeks, sorry, two chapters of narrative action, and then the second discourse. And remember, Matthew is not totally chronological. Okay, the beginning and the end are in the right places. But in the middle, the sections are arranged topically. So it's more a biographical sermon than a simple biography. And looking at these chapters, we need to ask, why did Matthew pick these incidents and put them together? Are there themes that we should catch from them? So today we're gonna look at the chapters through the lenses of two main themes. First, what do they say about the person of Jesus? Who is he? What reaction is stirred up when people encounter him? And second, what is his mission? What has he come to earth to do? Matthew gradually fleshes out these concepts as he moves through the gospel. So we see who Jesus is both in his actions and in the titles that are used for him. Chapter seven ends by saying that the crowds were amazed by the authority of his teaching. The miracles in chapters eight and nine are specific, concrete demonstrations of just how all-encompassing his authority is. Jesus heals every kind of disease and handicap, even those like blindness and leprosy that were considered to be life sentences. Not only that, but he heals at a distance without even approaching the sick person. That's the centurion's servant. He even has power over death, raising a dead girl back to life. Matthew says that this avalanche of healings declares Jesus to be the Messiah promised by Isaiah. At 8.17, he quotes Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That quote is from one of the passages in Isaiah that speaks of a God's servant suffering for the sake of his people. And many Jews already knew that as a messianic prophecy. In the messianic kingdom, there will be no illness, sorrow, tears, pain, although we haven't yet seen the final consummation of that kingdom when all those evils will be totally wiped out. Already, they cannot stand in the physical presence of the king. Jesus' miracles are not just a display of compassion, but they testify to his identity and to the inauguration of God's kingdom. When Jesus rebukes the winds and waves in a huge storm at sea, there's immediate calm. He is sovereign over the natural world. Jesus casts out demons who are so fierce that no one else dares to go near them. He demonstrates complete authority in both the natural and supernatural realms. Jesus even claims the authority to forgive sins. He tells the paralytic in chapter nine that his sins are forgiven. 
Jesus' other miracles are amazing, but this one crosses the line. The scribes conclude that Jesus is blaspheming. Usually, blasphemy is considered to be cursing God or speaking badly about him. Here, they call this blasphemy because he's claiming authority that belongs only to God and making himself equal to God. So the miracles and authority testify to who Jesus is. What are the titles used to identify Jesus as Messiah? Son of David showed up in the very first verse of Matthew. The Jews use it as a title for the Messiah who comes from David's line. Now the blind men in chapter eight use it, and you'll see it ever more frequently in Matthew as people start recognizing Jesus as Messiah. What about the title in 829, Son of God? Who calls Jesus that? The demons, the Gadarene demons. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? When the demons call Jesus that, they're acknowledging him as a member of the Trinity, truly divine. Who used that title with Jesus earlier in Matthew? I'll tell you. <laughs> Satan in chapter four, when he was tempting Jesus. Humans may be unclear about Jesus' identity, but the demons know exactly who he is. And they know him not only as the son of God, but as the one who will one day pronounce final judgment on them. There's another title used for the first time in chapter eight, verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You might say, well, that's a clear messianic title. We have the benefit of looking back in time and knowing that son of man became a messianic title in the gospels. But before the time of Jesus, the phrase had a broader range of meaning. You might know Daniel 7:14. One like a son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay. That is obviously Jesus there. But Psalm 8.4 says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Son of man there just means being human. And in the book of Ezekiel, son of man is the common way that God addresses the prophet Ezekiel. So what's going on? Jesus takes a rather broad phrase and begins to fill it with more specific messianic meaning. Scholars think he does this so that at first it won't be a clear claim to be the Messiah. The Jews have too many misunderstandings about Messiah. Jesus needs to redefine what the Messiah is before he makes that kind of claim. He also needs to get closer to the end of his ministry so that his hearers neither crown him king nor murder him prematurely. Jesus speaks in veiled terms at first, but he gets more explicit as time passes. Watch for Jesus to keep filling that son of man phrase with more meaning and being more explicit about his mission. Son of man is used 81 times in the gospels, every time by Jesus to refer to himself. So our picture of Jesus is solidifying. 
the promised Messiah, the divine son of God, exercising authority over all creation, natural and supernatural, one day pronouncing judgment on evil. How do people respond when Jesus' identity is revealed to them? Well, huge crowds follow him. They're probably a mix of the curious, the truly seeking, those who'll do anything to find healing, some genuine believers. But a few responses are very clear. The Gadarene population, the ones whose pigs all drown themselves, they just want Jesus to leave them alone. They care more about pigs and prosperity than about two men being made whole. And they are Gentiles. They maybe don't know much about Messiah. The Pharisees don't like having their position and teaching questioned. Jesus is pretty harsh with them in 9.13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means is something a rabbi of that time would say to a student who hadn't learned his lesson properly. Yeah, ouch. (laughs) And the quote itself comes from Hosea 6, from the middle of a scathing denunciation of backsliding apostate Israel. And the Pharisees would be familiar with that context. You can read Hosea 6 if you want. For their part, the Pharisees claim in 934 that Jesus is empowered by the prince of demons, that he's in league with Satan. And in chapter 10, Jesus says he's been called Beelzebul. Beelzebul may originally have been a pagan idol, but the Jews are using it here to mean Satan. The most significant response, though, is the one mentioned most often, faith. Why is the centurion commended for his great faith? He sees clearly who Jesus is and entrusts himself fully to that. The centurion himself has authority delegated to him by Rome. His soldiers have to obey him because when he speaks, Rome speaks. He sees that Jesus has authority from God and that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. All creation has to obey. So distance and illness are no hindrance to Jesus. Just stand right here, Jesus, and speak the word. It'll work. The other people whose faith is mentioned, the paralytic's friends, the woman with a discharge, the blind men, they may not have as much faith as a centurion, but they have enough faith to believe that Jesus can heal them if they come and submit themselves to him. As for the disciples in the storm, they of all people should know Jesus and have great faith in him. Instead, they're afraid. Jesus is disappointed by how little they trust him after all this time. So how does faith work? I tried to get a concise definition and it just wouldn't do that. So here's what I came up with. (laughs) Three steps. Faith recognizes God's character and my sinful helplessness. Faith chooses to move toward God in submission, dependence, and trust. And faith produces joyful obedience, confidence, and growing intimacy with God. So let's walk through that together. First, faith is based on seeing the truth of who God is and who I am. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking, maybe superstition or ritual. Sometimes faith has only a glimpse of God, but it's enough to move toward him. I see you writing, the, um, all the PowerPoint is in 
a resource section under WBF in the LEFC website. So if you, if you want that all done up, someone will help you find that. But faith is more than mere knowledge or accepting the facts. Remember, the demons know best who Jesus is. True faith chooses to move toward God as an act of the heart and will. In light of my bankruptcy and God's gracious sufficiency, I throw myself on him as my sure and only hope. And last, having done all that, I obey with confidence and joy and grow even closer to God. Then as I know God better and see him more closely, I can trust him even more and depend on him more fully. And my faith continues to grow and produce fruit in my life. It's a powerful cycle. If you look back at last week's notes, you see that this definition sounds similar to some of Christie's statements about kingdom flourishing, doesn't it? They use a lot of the same words. That's because faith is both the entrance into the kingdom and the empowering for kingdom life. So they're inseparably linked. How do the people in these chapters measure up to that definition of faith? Okay, the Gadarenes. I don't think they see or even care who Jesus is or they can't see past dead pigs. The Pharisees have some knowledge, but they don't want to humble themselves and submit to having their lives corrected and moving toward God. The various people who were healed by faith recognize at least some of who Jesus is. They trust in that and come to him. Jesus' disciples have faith, but not enough to produce confidence instead of fear when times get tough. The centurion sees most deeply who Jesus is and trusts that fully. So Jesus commends his great faith. And he's not even Jewish. Don't you wonder what would have happened if the centurion had been in the boat with the disciples in the storm? Of course, he wouldn't have been. They wouldn't let a Gentile in, I'm sure. That's going to change. We'll get there later. So what about Jesus saying that people's faith heals them? Does everyone with real faith get healed? Face to face with God in the flesh, yes. Jesus is the embodiment and fullness of the coming kingdom. When we stand one day in the presence of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom, we too will be totally healed. Until then, we await that final consummation and healing. Is healing in the atonement? Absolutely. So is the resurrection body. But I don't have mine yet. I'm sure ready for it more every day. That's part of the new and not yet, now and not yet kingdom. Jesus can and does heal now and probably does so more than we're even aware of. But healing is not guaranteed. For now, God is more concerned with our spiritual growth and maturity than he is with our physical healing. He often allows pain and suffering to grow us and drive us closer to him. I just read an interview with Tim Keller, pastor, author, co-founder of Gospel Coalition. He was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer two and a half years ago. Listen to a quote from him. He says, although he still asks God to heal him, he and his wife, Kathy, quote, would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. 
actually, ever so often, Kathy and I will say, we're having a much better life now. Wow. I'm not signing up for that, but I can understand it. This is what God does. So that's one theme, the person of Jesus and how people respond to him. What about the second theme, the mission of Jesus on earth? How do these chapters show him fulfilling the role of the Messiah? I'll mention three aspects that start to come clear in these chapters. His focus on calling and rescuing sinners, his initiating a new age in God's work, and his commissioning his followers to take up his ministry. So first, rescuing sinners. One of the clearest statements of Jesus' heart for sinners is 9, 12 to 13, when the Pharisees criticize him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Instead of condemnation, Jesus approaches people with mercy and compassion. He could have healed the leper with a word, but he reaches out and touches the man. That might have been the man's first human touch in years. Jesus tells the paralytic and the woman with a discharge to take heart. And 936 says that he has compassion on the crowds because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus comes this first time not as a judge, but as a friend of sinners. We know that the angel told Joseph in chapter one that Jesus would save his people from their sins. That's not common knowledge yet, but Matthew is building toward it. One day Jesus will appear in glory to judge the world. He talks about that later, but that's not his purpose on earth right now. Now he is coming as a servant to call people to repentance and to provide a way of salvation for all mankind. Remember the summary statements of Jesus and John's preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is calling sinners to come to him. The Pharisees, judgmental, self-righteous, they want Jesus to vindicate them and condemn sinners. The Jews want Jesus to fix their country now by getting rid of their sinning pagan rulers. Instead, Jesus wants them to go out and reach the world with the gospel. Second, Jesus introduces a new age in God's work. How did you do with the illustration about bridegroom patching clothes, wineskins? Does anybody here still patch clothes? I do, my grandkids' knees over and over. Jesus is preparing his followers for a major change, although he's doing it kind of cryptically like he does. God is not simply going to refurbish the old structures of Judaism by adding some new patches here and there. It wouldn't hold. It would tear apart. The new wine of kingdom life is based on a whole new structure. The Mosaic law and covenant will be superseded by a new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood. Jesus, the messianic bridegroom, will purchase his bride with his blood. Testament is an old-fashioned word for covenant. So when you see in your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you can think Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jeremiah prophesied about the coming New Covenant. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is accomplished through Jesus. If you want to read more about this transition from an old to new covenant, read Hebrews 8. This is actually quoted in Hebrews 8 and it goes into detail about the covenants. God's people are in for a radical change. The temple has been the meeting place of man and God, the appointed place of sacrifice. Now Jesus will be both sacrifice and priest for anyone who comes to him. And not only will the temple be obsolete, it's about to be destroyed in 70 AD. No longer will a nation be the center of God's plan. Instead, God will build a worldwide church that embraces all peoples. You can see the change beginning in the people Jesus deals with. The first three healings mentioned in chapter nine, I'm sorry, I think that's chapter eight. Did I write that wrong? Are a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. All three of them would be prohibited from full temple worship in Jesus' day. The New Testament describes the turbulence and upheaval as the early church works through this transition from Old Testament Judaism to the new structure. It's not an easy move. The third, Jesus commissions his followers for ministry. At the end of of chapter nine, when Jesus looks out on the crowds, he tells his disciples to pray for God to send out laborers into the harvest. That's a command for us too. The laborers are still too few. And in the very next verse, Jesus as God commissions his disciples to be harvesters. He's serious about this. And Jesus doesn't just send his disciples out to tell people about Jesus, but he actually shares his authority with them so that they themselves can heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Think about this. Earlier, Jesus compared himself to a physician coming to heal the sick. When you go to a doctor, they heal you or tell you how to get well, and you set off on your own life again, right? The doctor does not set you up as a medical co-worker in the practice. But Jesus is more than a mere healer. He says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew 10, 38 and 39. We sometimes talk about a burden or a hardship that we face as our cross, but taking up our cross is a lot more than that. Jesus means that we must die to ourselves and give our whole lives over to him. When he calls Matthew, that tax collector just gets up and walks away from his booth. We do people a disservice when we water down the gospel or act like God is here to wait on us and keep us comfortable instead of preaching the whole gospel. I vividly remember a conversation with a local evangelist when we worked in Thailand. She said to me, when someone tells me they want to believe in Jesus, I ask them if they're counting the cost. What will they say if their brother is in a motorcycle accident the next week and everyone blames it on them for making the spirits angry. 
What will they do when their grandmother dies next month and the whole family says it's their fault for refusing to make the proper spirit offerings? Wow. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Seems harsh. But the more I think about it, I realize that she kind of talks the way Jesus does in chapter 10. He warns his disciples about family tensions and divisions. Maybe she even sounds more like Jesus than we do sometimes. Jesus certainly didn't proclaim a health wealth gospel. So the first part of chapter 10, verses 5 to 16, seems to describe the disciples' immediate ministry to the Jews on this first trip. Just as the Apostle Paul did in this transitional time, they were to go first to the Jews and proclaim the promised Messiah. Verses 17 to 42 sound like a later ongoing ministry. Those things don't happen in the first trip. But the disciples are to carry out the work of Jesus with the same persecution that he faced, with the same determination that he demonstrated. Although the persecution hasn't been intense yet, Jesus is preparing them and those who follow after for what's to come. But Jesus says that in all this, the disciples are cared for and empowered by God. They're worth more than many sparrows, even the hairs on their head are numbered. Every detail of their lives is watched over by a compassionate and sovereign God. Not only that, but Jesus will provide all they need to carry out their assigned ministry. Jesus says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's 10, 19, and 20. The Holy Spirit will speak through them when they're called to defend themselves. If you were in our Exodus study last year, do you remember Bezalel, the head craftsman building the temple? Exodus 31 says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship. Bezalel was filled with the spirit of God to do extraordinary work on the tabernacle. The spirit was not commonly given to Israelites like that. Bezalel was singled out for an important task. And a few other people in the Old Testament were also specially given the spirit for an important task. But in the New Testament, under this new covenant, all believers have the incredible gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable them in their ministry. Think about that. We are that privileged and that empowered. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So like Bezalel, like the first disciples, we have a special commissioning and a huge empowering. We need to heed the call, obey the command and complete the work that the disciples started. As a matter of fact, that's how the book of Matthew ends. But that's another week, so you'll have to come back then. Let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly privileged, and we seem to take it for granted so often. Open our eyes to see who you are, the fullness of your person and character. 
to see what you have done, what you have accomplished for us in this new covenant. And stir up our hearts to follow you the way you ask us to follow you in faith and trust and obedience and carry out the mission that you have given us. Thank you that this is not ours to do on our own, but your spirit within us can give us all that we need. So we commit ourselves to you, to your word, to your working. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.